Hi there, and thanks for listening to the Break and Future seminar series with new seminars every Thursday from March the 18th, 2021. Over the past year, the Break and Futures team made up of staff and volunteers have completed archival research into historical prosecutions of sex between men in Berkshire between 1861 to 1967. Join us as the team discuss with our fantastic project partners, academics across the field of queer history and other projects working throughout the UK. Thank you so much for joining us, Peter. Um, so just to introduce um, our, our speaker today, we have Peter, who is the Professor Emeritus of English Literature at the University of Reading. He has published books and essays on US literature, queer studies and Oscar Wilde and dance. And he was also the co-lead on a HLF funded project, Oscar Wilde and the Reading Jail, which ran between 2014 and 2015. So we're delighted to welcome Peter to the Broken Future Seminar Series. So thank you so much for joining me today. And I wondered, Peter, if you could just start by telling us a little bit more about your research and your background within the university. Sure, it's a pleasure to be here. I taught mainly US literature at Reading and, and at other universities in my career. Increasingly, I wanted to work on queer projects and I wrote a book, a book called The Queer History of the Ballet because ballet always struck me as having a very strong connection with gay subcultures and there was no book on it. So although I wasn't a dance scholar, I ended up writing the book that I couldn't find to read and then I followed that on with focusing less on US literature and more on gay studies, queer culture, that sort of thing. And at the moment I'm writing a short history of Reading Jail for Two Rivers Press. Wow, that sounds amazing and definitely something that is probably quite contemporary relevant with the Reading Jail. Yes, um, and with this project too, the Broken Futures project. Um, and well, leading on from that, could you tell us a little bit more about the HLF funded project that you worked on um, in 2014-15, which was titled Oscar Wilde and the Reading Jail? What were your main kind of project findings? Sure, Oscar Wilde after his release from jail, he wrote in letters to friends how important the other prisoners were to him, how how much he was a, aware of them and how he felt supported by them. And it struck me that we didn't really know much about those people and no one had really taken Wilde seriously when he had made these comments. So I, I spent several months looking through the prison archives in the Berkshire Record Office and tried to find out who these people were, uh, what kind of people, what what sentences they were serving, what their backgrounds were, what their levels of education were, trying to work out also what the culture of the prison was that Wilde felt that those around him were so important to him. And I felt that certainly in wild scholars had never really done that work and I felt that it gave us a fuller picture of Wilde himself but also it gave us wonderful little insights into Reading in the 1890s. The main findings, I think a lot of them are what you would expect to find of 
a late 19th century prison. So, for instance, Reading was a local prison. It was the county jail. And so people there tended to be serving short sentences for minor offences like theft, drunk and disorderly, vagrancy, things like that, occasionally sexual offences. And also people who were convicted of capital crimes. So basically Reading was taking in minor criminals and people who were going to be hanged uh, and not the sort of people who would be considered more serious long-term criminals. They, for much of, of the 19th century, were still being transported, weren't they? So what you find is that, first of all, the educational levels are very low. Uh, for the period that I was looking at, basically the mid-90s, early to mid-90s, Oscar Wilde was the only clearly middle-class, university-educated prisoner that I could find in Reading. Mm -hmm. um, most of the rest were labourers, painters, very low-skilled jobs, and they were often illiterate or barely literate because mm -hmm. the prison records tell us whether they could read or write or both. So there was that. And I suppose sexual offences, yes, it was interesting to compare the sexual offences of the other prisoners with someone like Oscar Wilde, because Reading Jail was basically catering for small towns and villages and, you know, a place like Reading. It wasn't London. So the sexual offences that I found, the same sex ones, as far as I could make out, there were very sort of opportunistic moments of, you know, taking place in the fields or, you know, in, in someone's room somewhere. Whereas Oscar Wilde, obviously, he was part of a very erudite upper middle class queer culture in London. Mm -hmm. And his sexual activity was often involving a class of young men who were prostituting themselves. So although the convictions were the same, the experiences that led to the convictions were gulfs apart. Definitely. That's definitely something that we've seen echoed definitely in the Broken Futures project, especially yeah. in terms of, well, given that we've opened up those prison archives that I think you will have opened mm. around Wilde's date of conviction. We see that there are instances as you move towards like 1900s where you start to see different types of people being charged. So we do have people that may be middle, you know, yeah. upper class or have Oxford or, you know, Cambridge education. But again, there is a clear difference, as you say, behind the experiences that each individual has with under those charges. And we've used kind of a blanket search approach where we've taken gross indecency or buggery and then yeah. flicked through the calendars and tried to find them. And then from there, we've used genealogical and newspaper research to kind of understand a bit more. And what's definitely shown us is that each crime, even though it's charged under the same thing, has completely separate facts, completely separate you know, experiences, and then different kind of things that are affecting that person's experience of the criminal justice system, definitely. One thing that struck me is that as far as I could trace the people that I found, they tended to be have one conviction for same-sex offences, even where they might be then convicted over and over again for other things like like larceny or or whatever. Mm -hmm. I didn't 
encounter any examples of someone being sentenced more than once for a same sex offence? Was that your experience? We have found uh-huh. people sentenced for more than one offences. Um, particularly, I'm thinking of one individual particularly who will be featured in our exhibition, which you'll be able to see online, um, who has four convictions uh-huh. in different places, working as an insurance agent. He's travelling a lot. So, and he's What period is he? So first conviction is 1893 off the top right. of my head. Then one towards the end of the 1900s, 1903. And then in 1960, 19- 14 he's acquitted of an offence so you know again that's quite interesting that we have acquittals and then you know kind of conviction so it's not as if they are convicting a kind of sort of person or a type of person but on the basis of evidence within that offence actually having occurred so that was quite interesting for us one of the interesting things that we found from the reading prison registers was that there was a large amount of military offences for indecent conduct or disgraceful conduct Mm -hmm. and i actually did a bit of searching about these terms to try and find them within like military codes or army codes and there wasn't anything but what we did find was a court martial which reported indecent conduct in bed with a comrade. So that kind of, mm. so uh, quite an and interesting. When was that? That's in 1893. Oh. So um, he then moves into the jail just before Oscar's in there and then obviously leaves just as Oscar's entering. And one of the interesting things that we did find was the, the case of somebody actually being taken out of the prison two months before Oscar enters the prison and he has a conviction for same sex sex so what might be interesting is if there's something going on there about you know removing him from the prison whilst Oscar's in there I I think that's really interesting because I wondered if I had been seeing that when I was looking at the records it seemed as though people were getting remission just as Oscar Wilde was entering Reading Jail yeah. and obviously he's in um correct me I'm I'm just there's two prisons that he goes to before is it Pentonville then Wandsworth I think well he he was sent to Newgate over the weekend just to a holding yeah. cell and then he went to Wandsworth um mm. did he pass through Pentonville I can't remember offhand he uh, might not have that might just be me getting the I've got so many Victorian prisons or prisons <laughs> in my head it's all names confusing but Yes, it was quite it was quite interesting that he's he's, you know, obviously they're aware that he's going to Reading. They're appealing that they want him to move to Reading. And then around the time there's then remissions happening very quickly. I did see that, too. And it it does beg the question. Obviously, we can never know for sure what that reasoning was. But yeah, begs the question that you have quite a celebrity case moving into the jail. And wasn't I think Oscar Wilde's one of his the men that he befriended in prison and who visited him afterwards in France um, was a case like that. Someone who obviously got drunk and let rip in the barracks. Um, mm. Although I think Wilde says that this man definitely wasn't um, homosexual. Uh, he he's, he makes that discrimination <laughs> himself. Mm, it's really it's interesting isn't it the things that we can find and then the kind of the the researcher lens of us reading it and you know hearing that you've found that too it's quite mm-hmm. it's quite uh you know um 
it's quite a sharing thing, isn't it, that we've both gone into those records and found those different things within it and the ties that you can find in there. So the Ballad of Reading Jail by Wilde obviously outlines the need for people to look beyond Wilde himself and to the others in prison and the importance of ordinary people. And our project obviously looked at people that are convicted of same-sex sex within Berkshire. And we found indications that class may have actually paid some you know, kind of support in a plea of not guilty under character witnesses. And I just thought I would ask the question of what went wrong for Wilde? I think the class issue is a really interesting one. I mean, the fact is that the first trial did not convict and he was retried. So he nearly got off with it. To be clear, the first trial was when he sued Queensbury for libel and he abandoned that trial when he began to see the evidence that was going to be presented against him. The evidence was considerable and, you know, there were various kinds of evidence, letters that Wilde himself had written, statements from mm. youths who claimed to have been hired by Wilde. And yet still, the jury didn't quite convict him first time around. And I wonder if class was an element there. You know, mm. this idea that this highly educated man, uh, a married man, a man with children, how could he really be behaving like this? Was there some kind of protection there? I, I think we all know that he, he, he made dreadful mistakes in not taking Queensbury seriously as an opponent. And even within the trial, he made an off the cuff remark that damaged his case very badly when he was asked if he kissed a particular youth and said that, of course, he didn't because the youth was very plain. Yes. So it's 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 a really unhappy story, um, mm. however you look at it. What struck me also about class, and you will have seen this, is that Wilde did not get remission, whereas as far as I could see, most other people did. And that's the same finding that we've had too. That, yeah. And obviously we're looking particularly at same-sex offences between 1861 to 1920, and we found the same too, mm. that in most cases there is a remission. Um, you know, I think uh, there may be something, obviously we don't have these records, but there may be something in terms of disciplinary that might have been happening within the prison that might affect, obviously, a person's remission at the end. But it does look as if Oscar is not one of the only ones, but one of the yeah. ones that has to serve Yes. Um, his entire sentence and and I think it's quite interesting isn't it that the comparisons between that the need maybe to kind of put Oscar on this pedestal and to say that if you if you convict this you will serve your time and it will mm. be serious and you will have to face the consequences of your behaviour. Class playing against Wilde may have come in in the sense that he was highly educated he Although he, he often had debts, he lived a, a very comfortable life. He was married, he had children. And the charges against him, the evidence against him was of a series, uh, quite an extensive series of offences. Whereas if you were a, a Brookfield labourer who on one occasion was accused of um, sexual assault on another labourer, that might seem like a a case that was less ingrained to the people who were making those judgments and less worthy of of the maximum sentence. 
definitely definitely and i think that's very clear when we when we can compare them you know to the kind of people that we found within the research so i'm thinking of a particular case where we have an individual this is an an offence on minors so that's a you know need to clarify but this individual is a schoolmaster of a very high profile school in berkshire and he is basically in the town and he's seen by a police officer in a field with numerous different boys and basically handing over some money and the police officer watches this whole thing and then in the court in the newspapers we read that basically what happened was during the hearing the police officer provided the evidence of what he'd seen and then at the end of it they then invited character witnesses on behalf of this individual despite this police officer's obviously corroborating evidence and the boy's evidence too and the character witness said you know this this is a great person this person is of this character has this status you know is, is a teacher and you know would never be in part of this behavior and he's acquitted and it's quite interesting that even in the cases as you say where evidence is kind of available yeah potentially if that evidence maybe had any form of doubt or any anything around it likely to be overturned and then seen you know as the class being the kind of elevating factor that gives them their innocence what do you think to that case well it's it's very interesting and it's i think there were other cases in london that was similar where you yeah. you know if you were a retired general of thought to be of impeccable character it didn't matter what the evidence was the case with wild the the, the twist with wild that was really curious is that the prosecution made the case, what was a man like Oscar Wilde doing with lower class boys? He could not have any possible relationship with them other than a suspicious one. And Oscar Wilde, you know, he would say that he didn't base his friendship solely on people of his own class. But the prosecutors obviously thought a social meeting between a man of Wilde's status and the youths just was unthinkable unless it was prostitution and yeah. um i think that probably told very strongly against him so again yes that sense of class working in different ways in different at different moments definitely it reminds me of a case that we have with an individual called francis who's a curate um and is also charged for buggery and gross indecency with a particular individual who is also charged alongside him called john so they're both charged and he's also charged with other offenses that are on minors and he's a curate in ascot at the time the only information that we have from the newspaper trial is that a young boy was reading a, a story with him in the church and thought it was inappropriate the behavior but what we have in terms of John and Francis is an individual witness who owns the house where Francis is living in Ascot and actually puts a ladder up the side of the building to climb up the building and peer through the Venetian blinds to see Francis and John in bed and obviously when this doesn't work because Francis has closed the blinds he can't see so he thinks oh what what can I do to actually find out so instead he drills a hole in the ceiling above and it's all written in the newspaper and actually peers through when they come home after a church dance and then in the morning says to him I've seen what's happened and John leaves wearing Francis's clothes and, and shoes and what's quite interesting then is that private actor's role in actually 
finding that evidence and if you think about a curate and the kind of level of class that would have been around that individual being Oxford educated and then this this trial is then in newspapers across the UK you can find them in Ireland too so I think you're right that that if there's an, a large amount of evidence that is so damning potentially that class is then used as kind of you know to secure your downfall it's the reason why you know and use your offences as a kind of warning to others yeah. but yeah. then in other instances the class then can actually become something that you know as we see in Oscar's first trial and in other people that actually something that elevates your ability to be seen maybe a little bit differently within the courts yeah mm-hmm. very interesting so in terms of our research we've relied on obviously prison prison registers at the human majesty's prison reading which you'll have obviously looked at in the project that you did do you think it's important to restore reading jail as a site of queer heritage um, and is it necessary to preserve historical buildings like jails and as we know might have been a site of punishment misery for others uh, for people that have served their time there do you think there's an importance there, given Banksy and Kate Winslet this week. <laughs> <laughs> yes, how do you remember the past? I wonder what Oscar Wilde would have wanted done with that building. I suspect he would want it to be razed to the ground. I think he would want it to be demolished. But I think it's important that we do remember our social history and I think buildings are a a wonderful way of doing that. I think there can be a kind of a voyeurism in visiting places of misery, as you put it. And I think, you know, you I think that's what you were angling at there. And I definitely agree with you. And I went round the prison a couple of times when it was still a young offenders institute. And I've been round a few times since. And it's a very powerful experience. I myself think that we want to remember things in a transformational way so that it may be that you decide that something is of such historical importance that it has to be preserved intact with nothing being changed. That moment has passed with this building because it has been changed a lot over the years, but still there are elements of it that I just would hate to see destroyed. But I can imagine, and a lot of people in Reading have been (laughs) imagining, Mm. ways of transforming that building. So it is still an authentic historical site, Mm. but it's also reinvented in a way that preserves and also moves beyond what used to happen there. So that's the way I see it. As someone who's interested in, in the past, I've always secretly thought that it's a good thing that it's mothballed because then it doesn't get changed. But that's not actually the case. Something that gets mothballed gradually deteriorates and then it gets knocked down. I've noticed in some of the designs that have been floated around for changing the prison that they are really wonderful. They preserve some of the key buildings, but they make the space open for reinvention Mm. and reuse so I think it can be both I don't think it's an either or and yeah that's that's what I would love to see I would worry about it becoming a white elephant but I get the feeling that the people in Reading really do want to see something interesting and creative happen with that site I completely agree with you Peter I completely agree 
so Broken Futures is actually ran by the charity Support You. Support You is the LGBT support and wellbeing charity for the Thames Valley. One of the things that we found is that these sites can become something that is so important for people's belonging today and you know the belonging that we have within our town and spaces and one of the things that really struck me I don't know if you found this but when we were going through the prison archives with the kind of mental health the suicide reports of people you know being put in prison the reports of women who you know have had situations with their pregnancies or you know may have aborted their childs like those those stories were so harrowing and quite you know, kind of um, really made a mark on me from that. And I think with that site, we can we can use it instead of kind of elevating the need for a discussion around mental health and actually kind of re re rewrite those wrongs that have happened previously. And, you know, being a support and mental health charity, we are obviously very much advocates for talking about these things. And what better site to do it in than in somewhere where you know that things have changed and things are different and you're given a space to actually have your own voice so yeah i noticed it especially with the visiting committee minutes where they are deciding punishments and what should be done with people and the number of times you read the notes sent to molesford molesford was the asylum uh it's it's really chill, chilling and the fact that these people were imprisoned and often beaten before it was decided that they were ill and mm -hmm. uh, had mental health problems. It's 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 grim reading. It really is. It really is. I remember reading a newspaper a couple of weeks ago, where above was a case of same sex um, sex, and below was a case of an individual um, sentenced to time in the prison for having tried to commit suicide and um, during his time in prison they're writing that he's tried to commit suicide again in prison and they were like well what we'll do is we'll put them in the solitary confinement for 48 mm. hours and of course that will make him you know able to see his life in a different sense and he'll come out of there and be totally fine and go back to everything and that kind of blasé approach to serious serious things that will have you know maybe harrowed that person mm. is is quite uh, an amazing thing that you could potentially rewrite those wrongs within yeah. you know the Reading Jail um, and it's a it's a fantastic building it's a it's mm. a great site and you know I, I haven't actually been into the jail I came to Reading in 2016 when I started my university degree here so I I missed that time when the it was the Art Angel did the yes. yeah. event there um, so I did miss that unfortunately but I would love to go back I'm going to go and well, see the soon. hopefully we'll all get chances <laughs> yes <laughs> hopefully to go back and yes, it is a really interesting building, even though some of the original features were taken down in in the late 60s. You know, the, 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 the most spectacular architectural elements were the, the gatehouse and the chaplain and the governor's residence on either side of the gatehouse. And they they were stripped out when the the new wall and gatehouse was put in, I think, in 68 or 69. Um, but it's still a very interesting building. And I guess, you know, you mentioned Banksy. I think what he, he has done is an example itself of, of how you can transform the meaning of something. I always looked at that wall and thought that is so high and there's all the razor wire at the top. It's such a bleak statement. It's such a bleak social declaration. And he just over one night puts this clever mural in there and it the feel of it is is changed totally changed and 
after having going through those prison records and actually seeing those prison registers and then seeing those pictures of the people outside of the jail and having more of that kind of context about what actually happened in that jail it it gives you so much more kind of uh uh, it gives me hope that potentially, you know, this site is going to be able to be used as something mm. for the community and and it benefit them. Definitely. Yeah, I uh, completely agree. Um, so next question. So what role do you think archives and record officers have to di diversify the historical narratives that they hold? Obviously, record officers have statutory requirements. They have to preserve certain kinds of records. But I get the feeling that they are very interested in helping local communities understand the relevance of their collections. I mean, you've worked with Mark Stevens, who's uh, wonderful at opening up the things that are in in the record office and explaining you know, how to go about pursuing a particular topic. Most of the people that go to the record office are doing family history for the most part, but um, I think I think that they they can play a significant role. In fact, I, I think that they probably already do. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how archives evolve in that one assumes that an awful lot of electronic archives are now in existence and that whole business of how to build an archive has changed. And I think what I really like about the present moment is that I think increasingly people, both just individuals in the community and also academics like me who work on these things, have a, an increasing sense that they can interestingly and valuably archive their own lives. I have a colleague at Reading, the historian, who works on punk and a lot of his work was based on people's individual collections of when they were in their late teens mm -hmm. and those people they just stick fanzines and and t-shirts in a box and put them in the attic and that is an archive mm -hmm. and sooner or later someone like this very brilliant historian will come along and say there's a really interesting story in this let me borrow your archive so I really like that. I really like the sense that archives are not just things that you encounter in record offices or in university libraries. And the ones that are outside of those institutions are often just as important and as powerful. Definitely. And that's something that will definitely come out of the Broken Futures exhibition, yeah. given that we have all of our research and obviously Sport you have done two previous projects they've done one on hidden voices with people from the 80s and 90s that were LGBT in Reading yeah. and another on Wolfenden and from that we have some great audio tracks and sound bites of people mm. actually discussing their histories and as you say mm. you know record officers hold those statutory records but there are other places that hold their own types of archives and in the podcast we did we recorded last week with Mark he mentioned about charities and it it all of a sudden kind of clicked that support you would obviously be archiving yeah, our material too. So, yeah, I think you're so right. The the kind of approach to archives and the, the different forms of archives that we're seeing today, are very different. Um, 
I think especially given I saw this on the Berkshire Record Office's Twitter, they were doing COVID archives and actually how to archive the experiences of people through the COVID pandemic and and in such an interesting way. So yeah, I think uh, it's very, very interesting. But it's been a fantastic project. And I think the main part of the project, which has been probably the legacy, is actually having a community-based research group you know, go back into that archive and reclaim that space and find these lives within it. And it's definitely brought up some questions and considerations for future research, I'm sure. One thing that strikes me as you were talking there is um, Merle is is a great space, but it's mainly uh, English rural life. Uh, That would be another possibility if the if the prison gets reinvented is exhibition space and not just for for us in the LBGT plus community, but you know all kinds of communities that we now have in Reading uh, that that maybe could use a space to memorialise and to celebrate their lives. Mm. I know the male are doing a lot of work at the moment of you know trying to actually cover what is what isn't just stereotypically yeah. rural history um, and hence the uh, the featuring of our project on their yeah. exhibition website but I think you're so right there's a there's a need for a space to actually hold these stories and to hear different parts of the community you know we work very much across all communities that have people that are LGBT so having that space one of the I've heard talks about it potentially being like a cafe and having a theatre and you know maybe even having like space for like a community meeting zone and all that so it's, it sounds fantastic Wow, Peter, lovely to meet you. And thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thank you so much, Amy. You've been listening to the Broken Futures online seminar series. The project was funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund in 2019 and seeks to explore the history of ordinary men in Berkshire who were charged with buggery, indecent assault and gross indecency from the years 1861 to 1967 by training community volunteers in archival and genealogical research. The project is managed and delivered by Support You, the LGBT plus support and wellbeing charity in the Thames Valley. You can find out more by visiting www.brokenfutures.co.uk.